Welcome to episode 10 of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Buildings and Communities. My name is Stephen Peck, and I am your host and the founder of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. We're a nonprofit industry association that's working to develop the green roof and wall industry across North America. Today, we are talking about water and sustainable communities and are honored to be speaking with a man who has dedicated most of his notable career on the subject, Herbert Dreisaitl. Herbert is a sculptor, artist, landscape architect, and interdisciplinary urban planner. He founded the firm Atelier Dreisaitl in 1980 with a vision to develop livable cities inspired by a deep understanding of water. He's also a Harvard GSD Loeb Fellow, a fellow of the Center of Livable Cities in Singapore. He lectures worldwide and has authored many publications, including three editions of recent Waterscapes Planning, Building, and Designing with Water. For his work, he has received many awards in the United States and around the world. He has completed projects all over the world, including in cities like Berlin, Singapore, New York, Portland, and Copenhagen. I have had the opportunity of visiting one of these projects, the Potsdamer Platz in Germany, and it is truly brilliant with living machines, a centralized pond that acts as a reservoir that cools the square and provides amenity space for visitors. It's a truly multifunctional, marvelous project. Herbert, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Stephen, it's such a pleasure to have you uh, for the interview. So I'm very happy to be part of your of your program. It's great to have you. So Herbert, um, you know, you, you've definitely taken the path less traveled, let's say. I'm wondering, how did you become such an interdisciplinary master of sustainable city design? What launched you on this pathway in life in the early yeah. days? Um, well, there, there is... There, there is a, a longer and, and a short answer on that, but let me just try to get a little bit in the middle. Um, I was always interested on uh, on water issues, on water topics. Um, growing up here in southern southern Germany, uh, having a actually a, a wonderful uh, little uh, water uh, course, uh, small river just behind our house. I was down there playing. I, I did really enjoy basically the beauty and the richness of water. And um, later on, um, I was finding that really to act and work with water, um, you have to have a very wide open mind and perspective. And the reason why this came up is that uh, as a young person, it was like 1920, I was I was working in, a, a, I did a special uh, civil service with young people who were basically um, had problems with drugs. For example, morphine and heroin addicted people like you have a lot in, at that time, uh, 1980, 1990, we had lots, or 70s actually, we had lots of people um, with with morphine and heroin problems. So I figured out to help these people, the best is to bring them in fluid movements with drawings, with sketches. So I did water sketches, I did drawings, I did things to really open up their fantasy their mind and basically to get rid of fears what often young people have and that was another kind of entry into the water field from a totally different side and then 1900 
78, 79, I decided I want to open a studio, an art studio, working with people and basically on the topic on water. So my first projects when I started were all art projects. So I did projects for villages, for little towns here in Switzerland, in, in South Germany, uh, very much local in these regions. Um, I tried to avoid kind of... Um, symbolic kitsch or so but really to work with movements with the flow of water with the rhythms i had wonderful teachers at that time like john wilkes or, or wolfram schwenk or others and that opened basically my mind to work different and look very holistically to the what water does in our life um, and also what water does into uh in in urbanization in cities in villages and Step by step, I was doing more larger projects. We can talk more about it. And still from the beginning to, to today, I see this topic is so rich and so wide that you can never find an answer if you only specialize on only one aspect. So water is actually include, is, is including a lot of different topics. Yeah, it's almost like water demands an interdisciplinary approach if you're really yeah. going to achieve what can fully be achieved. Absolutely. That's right. And 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 I think that's something we often miss in education. And that's why I'm uh, nowadays, since uh, about 10, 15 years, I'm teaching a lot at, at universities and I'm always trying to open um, also uh, people's mind from my students, the emotions about what is water, what does it open up, what is, um, how does it actually free and open our fantasy, our imagination, our emotions, basically to reconnect ourselves, our deep inner world to the outer world. And I think water is really the bridge par excellence on this planet, what we need um, to uh, to overcome the isolation, what we often have as humans today. So is that what fuels your passion? What keeps you going, getting you up in the morning? It's the sort of the emancipation through a deeper understanding of water. Is that what's driving you? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, you know, as older I am, <laughs> I uh, I see that uh, the quick fix of coming up with engineering solution is often not really uh, something which really matters. Uh, what really matters is a kind of completely different attitude, what we have towards the environment. You know, I mean, Stephen, I just give you an example. I was... Um, Bettina and I, my wife and, and I, we were in Paris on this famous conference, COP21, when we decided, basically the world said, okay, let's try to um, to get the temperature on this planet uh, to a certain degree and we don't want to go over and we want to act and we want to do things. Um, I have seen until now how we fail with all that um, very good intentions. And it fails basically because we are not committed deeply enough. We are not committed to this world to, uh, you know, to have something which is uh, in a true sense uh, resilient and um, regenerative 
And um, the old-fashioned way would be maybe sustainable or or uh, in a way that this this planet is actually keep on going in, in a way that our interaction, what we do, is in a deeply rooted connection to that, what the environment and what nature is doing. We are totally separated somehow. And that's actually not a technical thing. That's basically an attitude or something about knowledge about our brain. And that's why I'm always starting. When I look at water, I make water experiments. I make, uh, I let water flow. I let students study water. I make uh, water streets and so on. And, and that is actually what surprises me a lot. Still today, uh, with everyone, even in a person who is an engineer deeply uh, in his career and in his uh, uh, his research, when he start when when you bring someone to the most direct phenomena on water, people are suddenly surprised about how rich water is and how surprising it is. And and I think this kind of wonder and this kind of also almost like I would say respect to uh, to what water is showing us. That that is actually what is driving me. Yeah, and certainly also what is driving me is I, I still have hope. Um, and when I look at the eyes of my grandchildren, uh, I find lots of reasons to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me feel like signing up for one of your courses when you describe it that way, Herbert. <laughs> Yeah, I just have one coming up very soon um, in Singapore, um, actually next month. Yeah, at the National gotcha. University of Singapore, I'm teaching there. Yeah, that should be that should be fantastic. Now, you mentioned the importance of water and our connectivity to it. Of course, without water, we can't have cities. Um, and you've been, you know, talking about wise water management and connectivity with water as being fundamental to the development of sustainable and regenerative regenerative communities. Why is water so important? Why can't we just, you know, ship in some water in plastic containers if we need to? Yeah, well, <laughs> interesting is that uh, the last 40 years, 45 years, I was working on this field. There is a shift. There is a kind of a change of uh, how we see water in cities. I, I think uh, 1980, uh, it was still, when I started, also here in Europe, it was basically water was seen as a problem. Uh, how to get rid of water as quick as possible in pipes and in, in uh, canals to get out of sight, out of mind. That was the main uh, purpose, what uh, what architects did and, and engineers did. And I think today, and that is, of course, an influence where, where I was just happy that I, I could actually inspire uh, a lot of young planners at that time to look different at water. Why it is more than just um, containing water in a plastic bag or whatever is because water has uh, the, the, field, the field of water is so that it is a kind of breathing system. It is a, is a system which you cannot actually hold in a glass and think that is water. Water is connected to everywhere. Uh, it can evaporate, it can infiltrate, it can actually regulate the temperature. It has a lot of uh, different ways to, to work with chemistry. It 
it can actually regenerate life on different forms. And, and I think this richness is also what is happening in cities. We just have to discover and to, to see it again. And that's actually about plants. That's about evaporation. That's about climate um, stabilization. Uh, and all that is water. It's, it's just not just a liquid we see. It's also mm -hmm. the interaction with air, with light, with infiltration into the ground, with keeping basically everything flexible, that is what water is doing. And that's that's why it is so important to rediscover um, uh, actually the potential and the richness what water has in our cities. So you you think that uh, there's a, a there's an awakening to the multiple um, facets and benefits of water in cities, and we're starting to finally move away from this idea that water is poison like early on in cities we we tended to use water bodies as sewage dumps and there are a lot of um, health issues associated with water cholera and a variety yeah. of different ailments so we so that i think that's where this get rid of the water out of cities get it away from buildings came from is it not because 150 years ago or so water was like death yeah that's true um th that's absolutely true and i think in the last i mean i'm just lucky that i was working already so long since 1980 i i have seen different terms coming up you know first we said uh modified uh stormwater management then we uh, did talk about sponge cities lately then we talk about water sensitive urban design in australia uh we did we did uh talk about water wise cities and so on so the terms the term terminology um on describing water in cities actually Actually, over the last decades already started to change it's it's not just uh water supply and uh wastewater treatment it's much richer it's much more um having a lot of different aspects and i think that's that's very interesting and basically also if i look in many cities and many uh countries how regulations started to change you know to look more holistically to, to the water regime in general uh, there is a shift in mindset and and in in the consciousness what uh, what uh, normal people do have but also engineers and uh, urban planners do yeah, and the one the whole one water movement and yeah and it's more as the problems is obvious that we have too much or too little water we have extreme floodings we have extreme droughts we have not enough water anymore in uh in in the earth in the ground so that uh, plants cannot actually survive or dry out then we have fires we cannot fight the fires because the whole system actually starts to collapse it's getting getting more and more hot in our cities the air pollution is 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 uh, extreme uh we we have nothing to hold back dust um and uh all this these facts are bringing us to the point that we have to rediscover water and its its uh, positive function yeah so who would you say is doing the best in wise water management? Where, where, who are the leading cities in this regard, would you say, as someone that has worked around the world? Uh, I mean, I was lucky to work in a number of cities who were early on already starting to come up with better strategic plans for cities. And 
I just like to uh, let 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 me just mention some. I think uh, a very interesting city who was early on already last century and uh, actually in in 1800 1900 already were thinking about water in a different way was the city of Vienna in in Austria. Um, I was happy to work in Vienna. I did also work in Copenhagen. Copenhagen did early on a really interesting strategic plan to clean uh, up the water in the canals in in the harbor today you can swim in the harbor but uh, 30 years ago it was absolutely dirty no one was actually putting a finger into this water um they developed something special called the cloudburst project i was actually very much influence, influential on on this program um but also cities um around the world. Singapore is an extremely interesting uh, example uh, with the ABC water guidelines or the city of um, of Basel here is doing a lot at the moment. We are also working in this city. Um, in US and uh, in Canada, I would say even cities like I was inspired um, and did work for the city of Vancouver when uh, we had the Olympics, um, how to work with villages, how with the Olympic Village, how to hold the water back, how to treat it, how to clean it, how to infiltrate, how to evaporate, how to bring green systems to that. Um, rooftop gardens, uh, green roofs, vertical greens, bioswales, all these things actually came up, let's see, like 20, 30 years. And Vancouver did a lot in this direction. And I would also mention maybe in the US, some cities like Portland, Oregon. Um, I did lots of projects in Portland, like the Tender Springs Park. They were all pioneer projects. And I think all these cities continue because they have a kind of win-win situation. For them, it's very clear if we do something very smart for the environment and keeping our water in the city, infiltrate it, treat it, clean it, evaporate, so we can control the temperatures, we can actually have cooling effects, we can hold back the water so that we don't have floodings further down. They see the co-benefits of all that because it's basically also making the city more livable. We have more plants, more animals, we have more biodiversity coming into the city. And actually, as a side effect, also the real estate value is going up and people are more healthy in the cities. So there are a number of cities who have good reasons to keep on going, and I think they're getting more and more. Well, thanks for that uh, tour around the uh, world, uh, Herbert. Uh, stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back in, in just a minute to speak more with Herbert Dreisaitl, who's an internationally renowned designer, interdisciplinary artist, um, making sure that we use water and respect water and honor water in our cities. In 2023, Green Roots for Healthy Cities is taking our smaller scale Greater Green Conference on the road, featuring a strong focus on local design and policy considerations and addressing regional priorities through practical solutions. Next stops on our tour will be in New York City on October 23rd and Vancouver on November 3rd. Join local designers, policymakers, and innovators for expert presentations, tours, networking, and a trade show, as well as the opportunity to take the brand new, fully hands-on green roof installation and maintenance professional training course. Both events are approved for seven continuing education credits and registration is already open. 
In New York, join designers and policymakers to explore the new regulatory landscapes of Local Laws 92 and 94, as well as the ongoing initiatives by the DEP to enhance green infrastructure uptake across the five boroughs. In Vancouver, learn from experts and researchers about the criticality of the Cascadia region ecosystems, how to protect its watersheds and enhance its biodiversity through investments and regulation into natural infrastructure systems. Special thanks to our sponsors and partners for their support of this event. For more information, visit us at greatergreenconference.org, and we hope to see you there. With me today is interdisciplinary design guru and artist Herbert Dreisaitl, and we're talking about water, and it's an incredibly important and multifunctional um, um, aspect uh, of performance within cities and all the different things that water managing water in a wise way, not trying to get it out of the city, but using it, capturing it, allowing it to evapotranspirate, uh, cooling cities, helping us fight fight climate change. Um, and uh, I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply into some of these concepts that you've been talking about, Herbert. Uh, you have done a lot to promote the concept of blue-green infrastructure in cities. Can you explain what blue-green infrastructure is and why you see it as being so important? Yeah, Stephen, uh, blue-green is actually just the colors for plants and for water. Uh, as we know, uh, plants can't exist without water, and water needs plants and um, soil uh, to be treated, to be clean, and to be filtered. Um, there's a kind of symbiotic uh, system uh, between living systems and and water and water quality to keep water in a good, uh, a good scale. Um, what it actually is, I, I might just make it more clear on some examples. Let me let me just take a very big one. Um, that's the city of Singapore, which is made basically a prototype, I would say, for many cities around the world. Um, the city of Singapore is a state and a city. Uh, more than 5.5, 6, more than 6 million people live there. And they need any drop, every drop of rainwater is needed uh, to treat and to filter and basically to give water supply for the city. Drinking water and everything is basically the rain which is falling on the city. Um, what the system actually of this ABC means, um, translated it is A for active, B for beautiful and C for clean. Uh, is the, the system actually works like this is starts with the catchment of the city. The city, every city has a kind of when rains comes down on the surface, usually you have asphalt, you have rooftops where the water runs down on, on metal or on uh, tiles or on, on asphalt. Uh, it goes into the sink, it goes into the canal, it shoots out into uh, big monsoon drain canals and basically it is lost in the ocean. Uh, and on the other hand, all cities need water. Um, so on one side, we've, we treat it in a way so that we push it out on the other hand, we need water urgently, and that actually also happened in Singapore many, many uh, decades. Singapore changed completely the concept, and I was actually very, very happy to help the city very early on to come up with the basic ideas and the system, and we call it the ABC Water Guidelines for Singapore, where we actually filter, hold back, uh, starting already on rooftops, so uh, as 
much as possible of uh, the buildings have green roofs or have filtration or collection systems where we bring the water then finally controlled in cisterns or in canals or in drain or in or in uh, swales we have also um vertical and horizontal green structures which are all there already to do this what a healthy forest is doing because a healthy forest is basically treating the water the rainwater already on site filtering it slowing it down saving it and finally what we have we have uh, canals or reservoirs or here even we have huge um you know, about almost 20 reservoirs around the island to recycle the water to recycle the rainwater and reuse it and use it actually for we call it new water in singapore um beside also of course also other uh types of water rainwater is getting more and more important just for the water supply of the city so that's a very extreme example and singapore is constantly um con keeping on on this way more than 100 more than 150 projects were already built um on different sites so the whole city is actually like the modern word would be uh like a sponge like a sponge city which is organizing itself is a system which keeps the water filters the water recycles the water and when there's some overflow it gives it out but clean and th this kind of thing you can scale it down you can actually bring it on a building level yeah where you have um special substrate on green roof systems on vertical and horizontal green structures you have on balconies on big buildings um and i give another example that's maybe uh the one from copenhagen and also from hamburg and hamburg is called the risa pro project the uh integrated uh, stormwater system um is basically to collect every drop of water on the city and treat it hold it back recycle it slow it down in the runoff evaporate infiltrate into the groundwater to renew the groundwater um, to, to recharge the groundwater aquifer and um, the evaporation means of course cooling and a cooling effect so in summer months or in tropical nights what we have more and more because of climate change this is a very good uh, a good chance to stabilize uh the ter the the air temperature and the climate in the city so all that goes hand in hand and i think this is more system thinking and lots of cities are actually having programs in this direction uh, many many projects many many cities do this now also in germany is very common but also in us i think also in canada more and more we go in this direction the matter is always how to make these projects work what's the long goal and vision is the city um the city parliament the city decision makers the mayor's office strong enough to really keep on going in this direction and uh can we see the added values uh also financially what it would mean uh if we go in this direction basically to uh avoid um costs we would have later by not doing this because not using this kind of technologies uh, makes it uh, extremely expensive already in our generation, but even more in the next generations. 
So it's maybe uh, basically a, a, a question of common sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the avoided cost, um, <clears throat> the avoided cost uh, issue uh, has a lot of um, makes a lot of economic sense. You know, if you look at the avoided cost of not disrupting the climate on a global basis, it's in trillions and trillions of dollars. It dwarfs the even the global economy, um, but it, it's often. Um, it's often at that big at those large scales it doesn't seem to be able to move um decision makers but when like you mentioned singapore needs to manage its resources its water resources because it doesn't have a lot of water <clears throat> that scarcity is a driver for innovation yeah it seems that's true um and, and and another driver is actually if we really have a big um disaster uh, for example if we have extreme floodings i can see this in my own town where we are here where i give the interview is a small town in uh in south in very much south germany called überlingen we had extreme floodings by extreme cloudbursts by by thunderstorms um our train station was flooded completely we lost a lot of uh, agricultural land uh we had um suddenly an ex extreme problems that um, um basements were full of water and so on and there is always a chance for about a half a year where people are ready to make a change you know, if things happen like this, industry, insurance companies, they all say, hey, we cannot go on like this. We have to do something. We have to change. That's why for, for me, I do a lot of research about a change process and what is needed for that. And I know that cities and um, city parliaments and planners and regional planning, they always need to have very good concepts and they have to use any any chance, any window of opportunity. If something happens, really to say, here is the better solution and here's the option. And that's what it will cost. And that's what we can do. And this kind of window of opportunity of after a, a big disaster is uh, just a couple of months. And that's where people are ready to make a change because it's very hard to get us out of our comfort zone. Yeah. But um, if we see the future and we see all the problems which are coming towards us and towards our children actually we have to look much more i i would say professional to make this change mm -hmm. what is this cloudburst project um i've i've heard about and mm -hmm. have you been able to implement the this concept in in any uh cities Oh, yeah. Um, the Cloudburst project was basically a, a word we used uh, in Copenhagen because Copenhagen was hit three times in a row with a so-called 100-year storm event. Mm. A storm water which normally, statistically, only appears every 100 years. And this actually happened in, in a couple of years. It, it, it's three of them. So um, the insurance companies and uh a lot of the private investment companies said this can't go on like this we have to find a better way because we it's too expensive they they had to repair the city again and again and it was just they ran out 
of money and they said we have to have a better strategic way then the city of um, Copenhagen made uh, basically a calculation on two sides what would be if we invest in conventional um, storm drains um, and deep tunnel solutions all in concrete all basically um, big engineering things and they figured out even if we do the best we can the best technology we have today is this is this actually hell of expensive and it would not cover the amount of waters which will be expected within the next 10 years so copenhagen said let's come up with another concept and we call this the cloudburst project which is basically allowing when there's a big thunderstorm and and a and a big storm event we say well the street can be flooded certain parks can be flooded uh, up to a certain height and we have a controlled emergency overflow. So we say, for example, that a street can be actually the um, stormwater runoff corridor in a worst case scenario. Um, that needs a whole programming. That needs the, the way how to make the houses, the entrance to, to buildings have to be higher so that this corridor can actually keep the water and the water would not go into the buildings. There's a, a lot of a lot of infrastructure which has to be changed. Um, also the logistic for that. So if we have a very big stormwater uh, event coming up, a big cloudburst uh, uh, event coming up, certain areas there's no parking. Yeah, there's. It's not allowed to put your cars there because that is the corridor for that. And um, also, we hold water back in some park in green areas. That's also what we do in Singapore. Um, that if there is a big storm event, then okay, no one will go into the park. No one will play in the gar in a garden uh, or in a playground. Even the playground equipments can be flooded. And we allow for about six hours, seven hours, eight hours maximum that these regions are flooded. And then when the storm event is gone, the cloudburst is gone, this water can be controlled going out. And then this is, again, uh, available land. So multifunctional use even on these spaces. That's what we call the cloudburst project. And it's, of course, not only one project. It's many, many. It's hundreds of them in the city. It's quite brilliant um, because uh, I have, have was in uh, Copenhagen uh, a couple of weeks back uh, on a tour and we walked uh, a whole little like a linear park, mm -hmm. uh, which had, you know, fruit trees and biodiversity. It had bees and various insects and birds. It was recreational. Uh, there were some recreational places built in, but its primary function was stormwater retention. Yeah. And diversion into uh, one of the rivers in Copenhagen, and um, we also saw a similar project like that on a, on a housing co-op where they had mm -hmm. redesigned their courtyard, yeah, uh, to be basically a stormwater, a temporary stormwater management pond. It's it's quite brilliant uh, the approach that you're describing. Yeah, I, I I know the projects actually you're mentioning. I mean, the very first one was this uh, stormwater, the cloudburst street, a street where basically we uh, what we did uh, instead of bringing the water into uh, the sewer pipe combined or separated sewer system, um, we brought it into a parkland and we basically we lowered the green area, the park. Even mm -hmm. with trees, with bushes, with biodiversity, and if there's a 
big storm event and this whole park will be flooded for about 30 centimeters, uh, some inches, and then slowly the water will actually uh, go out. And it's very interesting how it is controlled and we have very, very good experience with this. I mean, um, and it can be done in all kinds of different climate zones. You know, that's also interesting. I mean, water uh, water design has to be adapted to the different climate zones and different areas and regions. But uh, the basic principles are everywhere the same. Uh, you, you have it in in uh, Australia, in New Zealand, in uh, in Asia, in Europe, in America, in uh, North America, in Africa. Even we have uh, ways of how to how to treat water more wisely, more more sensitive, more with more wisdom. I would say. Yeah, and bringing plants into the picture, you know. Uh, you know, just as an added benefit for the yeah. uh, the people that live there, you know, in, in terms of their own health and well-being. Yeah. Uh, even if there isn't a, a cloud burst in 10 years, they're still going to benefit from exactly from these yeah. areas. Yeah. yeah. It's quite brilliant. Of course, it's always combined and uh, because I'm, I'm talking very much about the basic principles, but of course, there is behind that is a very, very high engineering also needed. You have to make the hydraulic calculation. You have to see how much uh, if, if you have an extreme storm event, like a 50 or 100 year storm event, how much volume would you have? Uh, where can you keep this volume? Uh, if you have a cloudburst street, what's the profile you need for this? Uh, what kind of slope? do you need what kind of surface structure do you need what roughness can you accept what kind of plants can actually survive uh, for a certain time when they are flooded uh, Singapore we made even a big research on our first pilot projects like uh, Bijan Amokyo Park we made test regions we made uh, we made engineering um, uh, computer models but we also made real uh, real mock-up um, examples and studied out how would the water flow, what kind of erosion would we have, what kind of plants would we need. And only when we had this test, then we started to bring it into reality. So I think, you know, there's always, behind these principles, there's a kind of new way of of engineering, of um, also bringing experts in, and uh, and we slowly getting more and more knowledge around the world with this. There's a big big exchange mm -hmm. of of wisdom and knowledge. Now, how do you address the, the the question of uncertainty? I mean, one of the things we hear from you know civil engineers in particular when it comes to like green roofs is they you know need to know for certain that you know that green roof is going to hold you know five centimeters of water or 10 centimeters of water at a given at a given time and when there's uncertainty uh because of there's so many variables at play um you know that's often used as an excuse or reason not to proceed yeah how do you deal with how do you deal <laughs> with uncertainty Stephen, this is actually you asked the wrong question, the wrong person probably for this. I would not give you the smooth and the friendly answer on this because well, just I, give me I'm, a straight I'm answer. very, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical for uh, if that if we uh, think as engineers we can make our calculations and our regulations that we can actually have a kind of safe world. I think a risk. There's always uh, a risk will be there. 
and we can never actually delete the risk. That's a very, very important part of what I also say to my clients. You know, give you an example. I did work for um, the Daimler Chrysler and for uh, for big companies in, in uh, European companies like uh, um, Sony and others for Berlin, for the center of Berlin. And when we did this project with Renzo Piano, uh, it's a huge project where we collect um, uh, from many, many buildings and streets, water in cisterns. Uh, we have open water tanks. We have uh, filtration, everything. Of course, I had to say, guys, um, we can do a lot of our calculation. We can do the best we can do. We can make the 50 or 100-year storm event. But there's still a risk. There's still always a risk. Nature is risky. And uh, cloudburst things and also with, cli with the climate change things, there's, there, there, we will have more and more extremes. And it can happen that the extremes are so uh, strong that they are over our estimation. Now, this is actually what I my answer is always. If we know in a worst case scenario what might happen, what would be the flow of water? What would be kind of what would what what could I how could I actually um, kind of um, look at the potential for destroyment or risks when I have a kind of uh, of, of of understanding of that what there is and if I try to make the frame conditions so that for example I have some buildings which are higher or some places where people can escape or we have a kind of warning system and all this, that is then much more safe. Um, so what I'm saying is we cannot avoid risks. It's more the question, how can we learn how to live with risks? That's what we do, for example, also in uh, in Singapore on our uh, Bishan Amokia Park, which is basically a, um, uh, a big um, stream canal, which can be full of water. And suddenly we have a lot of water shooting down. And what we say basically there is, uh, okay, we have to have a kind of slowing warning system so that people know water might come. Please step out. Um, stay away and people are not stupid people are actually if if people learn how to behave in the right way with with nature and with water uh, it will be not risky the, the big illusion is that we think today in our society we can take all risks away from people you know and and i think in the future in future um sustainability or resiliency or also uh, i would say um, adaptive um, urban planning means that we have to include the intelligence of people we have to include the way how we behave with risks we we have to see that um, that we have to step back and give realm uh, water when it's needed. We cannot say we are the masters and we control everything you know it's a completely yeah wrong behavior i think this kind of risk discussion goes you see i'm i'm getting angry actually when i talk about it don't get because angry whole, don't get angry <laughs> this this whole this whole discussion is about safety and about risks is completely going the wrong direction because it really comes to the point where decision makers which are often young students who have no idea about reality they get all the regulations then a good planner or a good investor comes to to such an um, 
uh, such an, uh, an office uh, asking, uh, can I get the building permission? He's looking at his papers and says, oh, no, the risk scenario here is described. You can only do this and this and then you make bullshit projects. You make very bad projects. Good projects always are the projects which are kind of dealing in a very intelligent and smart way risks. You know, they're dealing risks and they work. They, they, they find ways how to adapt and how to make things resilient to that what risk what risk is. So, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting point. And by the way, I have to say that my projects, what I when I did risky projects, so-called risky projects, they are very safe. Um, we had more damage before, like in Bijanamokyo Park, a lot of kids died because it was a concrete canal with two fences, so-called safe. Kids were playing soccer. We say in Germany, we say Fußball. Uh, and then suddenly a lot of water came they were scared. They were hiding under bridges. Then there came more water. They were trying to escape. It was slippery. They couldn't get out. It was fences on both sides. So uh, a lot of these boys died. Uh, oh, yeah. Now we have completely different approach. Uh, it is wide. It's no fence. It is open. It is uh, a, a valley, which is very, very shallow. Uh, when water comes, it can spread out. It can slowly go up. And of course, it can also be deep water. But everyone can actually see and, and react to the risks. So if a risk is not hidden, but so that people can behave and can learn how to work with risk, this is a much more safe strate strategic approach than um, thinking we can avoid all risks. Yeah. 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 No, that's a really good uh, example. And, uh, and uh, some great practical uh, advice about about risk and uh, and reward when it comes to uh, managing water. We'll be right back in, in a minute or so with uh, Herbert Dreisaitl, a world-renowned artist, uh, interdisciplinary planner, and master of all things water in cities. Stay with us. The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. To celebrate the launch of the Fall Water Edition of the Living Architecture Monitor, we're discounting all of our water management and green infrastructure offerings by 20% on the Living Architecture Academy from now to November 1st. Courses such as Net Zero Water for Buildings and Sites, green infrastructure for climate adaptation, as well as recordings of all of our water management and blue-green technology virtual symposia. All courses on the Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP continuing education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com to take advantage of this special promotion before it's over. With me today is uh, Herbert Dreisaitl, who's an interdisciplinary planner and artist and a master of water and how it factors into our urban dwellings and their sustainability. And we're talking about risk. And I just, I was wondering if I could throw another question at you, Herbert. I mean, how do we balance the need for standards in terms of water management and also the need for innovation? Clearly, we mm. need more innovation because yeah. there's changes taking place in how we look at water and you can't just put it in a box 
you know, you need to look at water holistically at a site level or multiple sites. How do we, have you come across any way where we're seeing innovation or governance or legal structures or anything that helps us balance those two things or maybe mm. debalance them? Yeah, I, I think this is a very good point, a very good question, which actually all my life I was actually struggling or basically I was uh, thinking a lot about what that is. Um, maybe I, I I give you kind of um, my thoughts on that on that. What I have seen in my in my field of praxis, um, I was very often um, in kind of committees um, to come up with new regulations. Um, for example, here in in Europe, um, in Germany, in different countries, and um, also in US, uh, also in Singapore, um, there's a kind of tendency, I would say, worldwide, and that's basically our our nature that we start as soon as we see something or or see kind of direction of a, a new approach of a solution we try we try to put it down nail it down and make a regulation out of it um i, I was always warning uh in committees or in in uh groups which work on new regulations here i said hey wait a while that is too new. Uh, we need to give it time. There might be new innovation coming up. There might be better solutions which we cannot even dream of today. What uh, what we might have in let's say five years, and that's actually the case. When I look back on my forty five years of praxis, um, I know that forty years ago we had no clue, no idea what we can do today, uh, and what kind of cooperation between architects and uh, engineers and landscape architects and uh, what kind of technologies you have for green roofs, for vertical green. If you think, for example, just um, things like the uh, the green buildings in Singapore, um, uh, the Park Royale on Pickering or the, um, the big uh, skyscraper um, building uh, oasis in Singapore. These are examples, I would say, 20, 30 years, uh, if we would have explained this to someone and said, hey, guys, this is impossible. So innovation actually needs, I would say, a kind of freedom, a kind of um, space to test out things. And of course, the other part is it should not be risky in a bad sense, that, uh, that it is actually driving um things out completely out of control so i think some regulations or some guidelines in in a direction is needed um and also to push developers forward um to do more in green infrastructure or more in blue green infrastructure uh probably you also need certain regulations for them to say for building codes or for new housings or new buildings, or you have to have green roofs, you have to have this kind of things, or you have to have this kind of uh, investment uh, in sustainable or or regenerative uh, architecture. I think that's all that's all needed. So it's a kind of balance. You have to balance out uh, how far you can go with regulations. How can regulations actually support things? and avoid that things get stuck or still are staying in the old uh, conditions. But 
On the other hand, I think we are often over-regulating in all countries. It's not only in the US or Canada or Germany. It's actually in many, many cities, especially shocking in, in Asia, yeah. uh, where, where um, people start to regulate and over-regulate things. And then finally, when it gets to decision makers, they are overloaded they are bombarded by all kinds of regulations and then when they actually have a project and then they go to a to the administrative um, uh, bureaus to give to get a billing permission there are often sitting people um, who have no idea of, of reality of praxis so they only look at at regulations and say Oh, here is written this, so this cannot be done, <laughs> and yeah. that is a killer for for um, for innovation. That's also often a killer for good uh, for a killer for good solutions. So, I'm talking a lot about this field because I know it's difficult. I don't have the answer. Um, I know both is needed, but certainly I think the swing was going too much towards overregulating, and innovation needs courage, needs also for companies a kind of um, drive or some people who are driving to take on risks uh, and to say, okay, we want to break the boundaries. We want to make really more and go forward. And and I think these are often the successful people, um, but sadly, they are only the I would say the top of the iceberg, and most people are follow basically the main main stream and make main regulations. So it has this all different aspects, and I I think um, we probably need to um, to change our regulations also towards more um, to show opportunities. Often I work on projects where I made um, more like. Um, Guide uh, guidebooks or 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 booklets showing the opportunities, what developers can do for a new housing uh, estate or for a new part of a city. And I had long conversations usually with the uh, city uh, administrative um, bureaus, um, city planning offices, the, the the mayors, and so on. But finally, we often could convince them to say, let's more come up with. Um, guidelines who are having the approach that we more show the positive effects and more the opportunities and encourage developers and architects and engineers to go forward. And maybe just to avoid that they make too big mistakes because mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's a better approach. I have several projects where, where we did it. Uh, Solar City in Linz, for example, Potsdamer Platz in Berlin was also in this this direction, um, and certainly a, a number of projects. What we do now for Basel, for example, are also going in this direction. So they get some kind of a special uh, pilot project status or yeah. innovation status, so they they can do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Yeah, it's it's a kind of um, it's a kind of guidebook uh, showing also cases, good examples, opportunities. It's like a toolbox where you can actually see what different methods could you have? What could you do uh, here? How could you implement uh, swales? 
how could you implement uh, maybe balconies or rooftop gardens? How could you actually um, use the slope you have in, this, in the street to actually have maybe some uh, controlled floodings in certain areas and so on? So it's really coming up with lots of uh, of things what we can what we can do. And there's always much more opportunities what we usually think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's really uh, that's really helpful. Um, <clears throat> what uh, role in particular do you see green roofs playing uh, in your work to design and redesign cities? We've, there's been a bit of a movement in North America towards blue green roofs, ones that have a certain amount of detention built in and retention, retention from the green roof, the, the substrate and the plants and the and the drainage layer, but also either store like storage on the roof. Um, or in in the in the actual uh, drainage system, or potentially in in cisterns, which is detention based, so mm -hmm. it's a sort of a retention detention. Yeah. That's uh, a trend right now in um, in North in North America in many cities. What what do you see uh, the role of green roofs and walls? Have we, you know, have we taken advantage of these technologies? Have we? Is there more innovation coming? Um, um yeah yeah i i think i'm very strong believing in uh in this technologies of green roofs or vertical green structures and um in my early projects i had already green roofs uh involved i mean 1980 90 already uh berlin Potsdam Platz has enormous green roofs everywhere they are extensive green roofs uh and uh and i think it uh, there is a big opportunity on that but often it should not be a dogma it it could i mean the green roof technology could also be developed forward to combine it with solar energy solar technologies which are often green roofs and solar uh, photovoltaic um, can be combined there are new systems coming up on the market i think all these kind of things uh, are just a starting point i think that could be done much more and I see it more like um, the opportunities to bring uh, more green into the cities. Um, I see it more like my my friends from Singapore, like the the architects uh, Boha, like Man Sam, for example, has uh, shown in a very very great book. Uh, if you do it right, um, basically what we take away when we when we build the gray infrastructure which is asphalt uh concrete and a building if we take that ground uh, uh, and and square feet or square meters away we can actually give it back uh even more than one time we can give it back they have shown on projects like 10 times more green uh for um having biodiversity having evaporation having better air quality uh having uh also psychologically a better effect to people's health that's another thing which interests me a lot um because a gray city has much more potential that people have depressions that people have burnouts that that people have dementia when they're getting older while if you have a green city uh, or blue-green city with water and, and green, the psychological effect is very strong. The biophilia effect is so that 
what uh, in Japan they call forest bathing. But you can see this in every city where we have more green, people go more out, they are more, um, they're more happy uh, because green is associating with health, with uh, leisure, with um, kind of uh, friendliness and, f and you're more connected, you're not less isolated. So the, the side effects, I would say, from green structures, if it's green roofs, if it's vertical green, if it's uh, bioswales, if it's little pocket parks, all that is actually helping basically to make uh, the water regime better, to have more biodiversity, to have better air quality, and to have the, have uh, have a better psychological effect to make the cities more livable. Very good reasons to continue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's funny, but there's certainly been a growing body of um, scientific literature that demonstrates what you're talking about yeah. uh, very clearly. And um, yet it's, I mean, I, you don't see that being often as a consideration. You know, you see oh, access to parkland, mm -hmm. you know, uh, proximity to parkland as a, as a design or a planning principle. But I don't think we've got... It doesn't seem that the health um, sector has completely woken up to what you're talking about. In yeah. Terms of, you know, more productive, healthier, more cooperative, even more generous, yeah. um, more generosity among people that have green, blue green environments to live in. Mm. Uh, is yeah, that been Stephen, your experience or no no that's mm -hmm. right Stephen, I, I i completely understand what you're saying and i see this also in a lot of discussions even in i mean i'm i'm uh, my wife and and i we're we're we are we we got really our fingers and our hands dirty on very very local politics so we are also here in the city parliament so we know how in difficult it is to convince people on that um but i have a very good example um that cities who are really sort of successful, financially also successful, they see, the, I would call it almost the symbolic capital of green. They see the added value and they can actually even make calculations on that. Um, interesting is that Singapore early on had a program uh, to say this city should be a city within nature, within gardens, within waters. And they can see that they're in competing with uh, Hong Kong, for example. Singapore is winning because it is a, an environmental resilient city where young people and families love to be because it's much more healthy, it's much more um, sustainable. Life expect expectation in this city is higher than, uh, for example, in Germany. Yeah. So um, the so it's starting more and more that also companies are starting to think where should we have our headquarter? Where should we um, get the best people? Uh, what are the frame conditions to have young people and young families to stay in our company? Mm -hmm. um, all these things are starting to come up. And I think we need more and more research on this also to show the, to quantify this uh, added values. Um, and I think we have to talk about it. I think it's very important that um, the, the profession of uh, landscape architects, of builders for green roofs and so on, 
uh, bring these aspects much more powerful, much more strong into the, the debate. And I think that's um, that's what we have. And I think we have good reasons. It may be uh, mostly anecdotal evidence at this point. I'm not sure anybody's been able to, you know, do a scientific study of competitiveness for investment and related to, you know, blue-green infrastructure. But intuitively, it certainly makes sense. And there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest it does make sense that cities that are innovative in this way will prosper. Yeah. The problem is often that we take our calculations and our win situations too short from the time, because if we if you invest and you want to have a return within two two years or three years, uh, that wouldn't work. But if you have a little bit of longer period, you make an absolutely win win situation, and that's a problem what we still have in our economy that we have too short terms. Also in our political decision making and our re-election of uh, of governments. Uh, we need we would need more this longer um perspective to see the effect and if it's too short um that's often uh people are not not willing to invest um in in good infrastructure mm. yes i agree with that there's certainly the time there's a timing challenge mm. so i'm wondering uh what what is it that you're working on right now that we should know about uh, anything <laughs> that works um i'm actually happy that i i'm working on on projects at the moment i um i i i actually said i need to bring in my uh my life experience and my my knowledge a bit more on some pilot projects where i'm really committed and very strong uh working on it so i have i do one for um uh, I do a project which also has to do a lot with art, with artwork, with beauty, with, with emotions. And it's about a seasonal waters. So water in different time, um, timings, spring, summer, fall and winter. And this is actually a central plaza uh, in at uh, Main Street in Milwaukee. So the end of Milwaukee um, on on the street on Main Street will have uh, a central park and there is a kind of huge water feature which is celebrating water in uh, the four seasons. Uh, of course, Milwaukee has uh, cold winters and humid and hot summers and something in between. And this fountain is actually representing this kind of thing. So, so that's a very artist. Project. And you're right on Lake Michigan there too. Yeah, Lake Michigan, right? And it's 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 actually a nice way because we have a we we're still uh, looking for getting the final funding because it's a private investor, um, uh, which is uh, South uh, uh, the Third Ward um, Association. Um, and uh, they are my client and they're looking for to identify this part of Milwaukee, which is a very industrial uh, area uh, where also um, Harley-Davidson uh, museum is there they, they started a lot of famous companies came out of from this region and they want to actually um make a big change and also bring the symbolic capital for for this entire neighborhood 
up. And there we use also water because it's very much about water. Uh, the whole city has uh, beautiful rivers coming together. The Freshwater Science Center is there. Um, and uh, I'm, I was selected actually to be the artist for this. So that's a real art project where I'm working now on. I did full-scale one-to-one mock-ups uh, in a big hall, in an industrial hall um in uh in in clay and then we started to scan it in and do it digital and it will be finally uh, realized uh, some part will be done in in stone um in in different materials and uh and and that's also part of a, a whole part concept Another one um, I'm working on is also very uh, a very nice project is actually a smaller city in the Czech Republic. And we do an integrated city plan for water, for greenery, and for in, in, uh, in, uh, kind of uh, intensify the city center. Uh, because this city was actually, um, after World War II, very much run down. A lot of young people are leaving from this. It's a rural area. And I'm very interested to work with smaller towns to give them a very strong drive and reason for young people to say, we want to go to this city because the city is innovation, is inno- it has lots of innovation, has interesting new companies, has a good image. And there's the entire planning. So uh, I do public workshops with citizens I involve actually, we had more than uh, 500 or 700 people involved in public workshops on weekends. Uh, we made a survey on that. And it's also a very personal project to me because it's actually the home of my grand, grand, grandparents uh, from 1600. They were living in this city. We call this project Bridging the Gap because it's also about uh, how to overcome uh, the um, uh, basically the cutting uh, Europe uh, situation after World War II. So it's it's really interesting on very different levels uh, between country and rural areas, uh, between cities and rural areas, uh, how to make the city really uh, great again for um, for industry, for sustainable industry. And we work with the mayor's office on that. And so I will be next week, I will be going there, um, give presentations. We just made a final study on that. And maybe another third project I'm also just um, very keen uh, to see how that now goes on. We did uh, basically in the existing industrial side of Basel, uh, of Basel, of Switzerland, which was actually the chemistry uh, town, which was um, lots of companies, you know, Bayer, Siba, Geige at that time, now Sandoz and others were in the city um, and made the city uh, important. And then big um, companies were going around the world. They have this kind of um, um, hard history about chemistry and about also pollution. And Together with the city parliament, we are working on um, on a district of this uh, of this new industrial site to make it a sponge city, um, to make blue green, to have rooftops, to have courtyards, to have vertical greens, to have uh, very interesting open space structure 
we limit um of course traffic by being more smart in the way what kind of mobility concepts we use uh, and all that is actually combined and brings a better solution to make the city more livable and it's actually in the the challenge is how to recycle some of these old buildings so these are just three examples of current projects where i'm working on i mean it sounds to me like your you know your work um, you know, was focused on water, but it's really about, you know, city building, economic development, health and well-being, biodiversity, you know, investment. Yeah. And it, it's it's like the, the water piece is in sort of the center of the wheel. Yeah. But the, the spokes touch almost all aspects of, of city Absolutely. life. Yes. That's that's right. I mean, that's so interesting. I mean, you have to focus on something, you know, otherwise you're lost in this world. So for me, water is the anchor in a way, uh, or I put my anchor in water, I would say. And but uh, but I'm I'm really interested in all fields um, of life, and uh, cities interest me a lot. Societies interest me a lot, and I I'm really looking forward. What kind of innovation? What kind of new trends will we? Uh, discover and develop um, to actually fight the challenges we have today with climate, with um, um, social issues, and so so on. I think there's uh, there's a lot what we what we have to do. The worst is if we say there nothing can be done, you know, no hope. And I'm that's why I'm also teaching at universities, and I'm I'm trying to give uh, the young generation always kind of even if you don't know the answer yet uh if you don't give up and you just research and if you try hard you, overnight sometimes good ideas are coming and then you you know where to go and that's uh, this kind of quality i try to give my students well your work and your passion uh and your intellect and creativity are are inspiring and for many and have certainly inspired me and i'm sure it will inspire many young people um, in the years to come. How do we find out more about your work? Where can you direct people for your publications or your teachings or your portfolio? Uh, I think there's a number of books, um, but uh, also articles. And I, I think the easiest is maybe just to look at my website, uh, www.dreisidel, uh, so my name, dreisidelconsulting.com. Uh, so I, after I had my studio for more than 30 years, um, I started to connect to a big engineering company and they continue also to work in this field. And um, I was just thinking that I should really focus more on my expertise. And so I started my own small consulting company, which is Drysidle. Uh, consulting.com and there you find a lot of links a lot of talks a lot of material i think that's maybe the easiest way to find out more excellent well herbert thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your your wisdom and your your passion and making us think about water in a much more holistic way i've certainly uh, uh, made me think about water and how it moves from a gaseous state to a liquid state. And in Canada, it gets frozen a lot of the time too, but uh, it's many rules in sustainable uh, city development 
And thank you. Thank you for uh, for being with us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm looking forward for our next water workshop we could do together. <laughs> thank you, Stephen. Well, it was a pleasure be, to be part of that this. That would be fantastic. Let's definitely uh, figure that out for the future. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.